The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Well, now I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. At the end of February, when we were just coming out of the COVID ban on in-person church gatherings, I, I thought it was time for us to observe the Lord's Supper, which is something we hadn't done for, for over a year. And I explained, as I preached on that day, that long absences from church services have serious effect on the life of the church. And one uh, of these areas that it affects is our inability to participate in church ordinances. And again, in that message on, on that Sunday morning, I noted how and where the supper is to be observed and we, we talked about how the church is, and I'm thoroughly convinced of this, that the church is the visible gathering of God's people, God's people who are covenant together to work together in the gospel. This is the body of Christ. And since the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, it can only be observed within the assembly. Well, from that message, there were several questions that were asked about the church, and it started me to think that it's time that we refresh ourselves on the New Testament doctrine of the church. The last time I taught the subject in, in, in detail was about eight years ago, and I believe that we do need to study the doctrine again and to investigate several aspects of church doctrine. I've been asked countless times, uh, what do I believe about the church? And I always say that I have a historical understanding of it. The church has uh, been on my mind almost my entire life. For nearly seven decades, the church has been on my mind. And, and uh, I've attended church. You know, when I was young, I, I sat next to Abraham Lincoln in Sunday school. and It's been a long, long time. But the church is God's program for the way that God accomplishes his work in this world. Individual Christians can't neglect the church. We can't dismiss the church and think that we will do God's work and be spiritual and sanctified without it. Now in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus revealed his program to his disciples this was his program for saving his people. His church is the, the way that he expected his disciples to carry out the evangelization of his chosen people. Now, if you'll look at in verse 13 of Matthew 16, we'll start there. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now again, there in verse number 18, I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this this revelation was made to Peter after Peter had made his profession of Christ's lordship. The Lord asked him and asked all of the disciples, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And in the 16th verse, Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then after this confession, Jesus said that he would build his church. Now, I'm not going to go into various theories now of what people believe about the rock and say that the rock that that Christ would build his church upon, what is that rock? The only thing that I want to say about it is I believe that that rock is Jesus Christ himself. Now, the church is mentioned once in Matthew 16, twice more in chapter 18, and those are the only times that the church is mentioned in the gospel accounts. And yet the church looms large throughout the gospels because Jesus took these men that he called to be apostles and he made them the foundation of the church with himself as the chief cornerstone. He is the rock. Now we find this teaching in Ephesians chapter 2 about foundations and cornerstones and the apostles and how they fit into all of this. In Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse number 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Now call your attention once again to Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. There in that verse we find that Jesus started something. He started something new. It wasn't known to his disciples because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. The disciples didn't learn about the church because they read it in the Torah. They didn't learn it from the rabbis because the rabbis didn't teach this. In fact, the apostle Paul, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the most well-known, well-respected rabbis, learned rabbis of the time, Paul did not learn this from him. He didn't teach this. But Paul said, it is the Lord who revealed to me the mystery of the church. So the church was new. And the relationship that Christ would have to this body of believers was yet unknown. Now the disciples fully expected, as all the Jews did, that when the Messiah came, that he would begin his kingdom. The kingdom would immediately follow upon the, uh, the coming of the Messiah into the world. They didn't know anything about this long interlude of the, of the New Testament church that was God's plan to, reunite, to unite the Jews and the Gentiles into one body. This interlude before the kingdom is the church age. And it's the time that stretches from this passage that we read here in Matthew chapter 16 all the way to this 
present now, or this time that we're living, and it will last until the Lord Jesus comes to take his people home. Jesus began a church. Now later we're going to look at the meaning of the Greek word that's translated as church in our English New Testament. And although the concept of the church was new, the Greek word that it's used to describe this was not new. And the disciples would have taken that in its ordinary meaning, the ordinary sense of the word. And that's important for us to understand. And it's something that we will deal with later as we look at the nature of the church. Now, today, though, in the beginning of this series, I want to give you an overview of the true New Testament church. Much of what I'll talk about today will be developed more in later sermons. Now, when Jesus made this statement, upon this rock, I will build my church, those were words of vital importance. Again, this is not something we pass over. Essentially, in just this one phrase, the Lord Jesus gave us God's plan and program for what is now the past 2,000 years of history. The church is the entity begun by Christ that is responsible for doing his work in the world until he comes again. And that is a point I will repeatedly make. And so it's crucially important that we understand what Christ did and what he intended. And we know that there are many who claim to be the true church of the living God. Almost all of them claim that they are modeled after the New Testament. Because we couldn't imagine that too many of them would say, well, no, we're nothing like the New Testament. So they claim that they are the church that was begun by Jesus Christ. And yet we find when you examine the doctrines of all these different people that they don't agree with each other. And most importantly, they don't agree with the Bible. And so we must go to the scriptures to find the church and make sure that it's the right church and it's the same church that Jesus founded. Now, as, as all church members, I hope, of Berean Baptists are aware, our church has a summary of doctrines that we teach. And that summary is called our statement of faith. There are 18 articles that explain our our belief in certain important doctrines and though they don't exhaust all that this statement doesn't exhaust all that we believe about these doctrines nor all that we believe about the Bible yet it is good and I think important for each of you who are members to know this statement of faith you should be acquainted with the article so that you are very clear what our church believes what do we stand for well in article 13 of our church statement of faith is the summary of what we believe about the church. This article says, We believe in a visible church under the headship of Christ, which is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, exclusively vested with the authority to observe the ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws and exercising the gifts rights and privileges invested in them by his word, that its only scriptural offices are bishops and pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. If we deconstruct that statement, we can 
back out the component parts of a New Testament church. And in our study for the next few weeks, we will examine these component parts. I want to begin with what should be obvious to all of us after reading Matthew 16, 18. First, we want to look at this, that the true church must begin with Christ. That seems to be the most obvious, doesn't it? Since Jesus is the author and the founder of Christianity and of the church, then of course we must start with him. Christianity is Christ, and the church in the word is described as his body. And so if we are to follow Christ, then we must be a part of his program, the way he does his work in the world, and we then need to be members of the church that he built. Well, as obvious as that should be, there are millions of people throughout the world who say that they are Christians, but they're not members of the church that Jesus personally founded. They're not members of the church that Christ gave his commission to to do his work. There are many churches that call themselves the churches of Christ, but they don't represent the teachings of the true founder. So there must be some scriptural evidence. There must be something in the Word of God that defines the truth about the church. And if we can determine what that evidence is and the meaning of it, then we will find the church that Jesus built. Now, although the Old Testament didn't reveal the mystery of the church, we do find typology there about the church. Those in the Old Testament times didn't understand what this typology was all about. We go into the New Testament, and as we study the New Testament, then we see those types that are developed in the Old Testament. So there are certain aspects of of the church that will come out in Old Testament scriptures, even though we're not specifically told that it relates to the church. We find this out in the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, you are familiar that there was a temple, and that was the place where God met with his people. Anyone in those times who wanted to be where there were special manifestations of God's presence, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem. There were special feast days and times of worship, and there were sacrifices, and the people would gather, they would make their trips to Jerusalem, and there at the temple, they would be in the presence of God. Well, in the New Testament, we find similarity. Uh, The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the place where God meets specially with his people. Although we have Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, even though we know this, it is the church assembled, the church together, where we meet corporately for fellowship That is a place where the Spirit of Christ dwells with us in a very, very special sense. The church is the hub of activity for the works that the Lord commanded in the New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul explained the presence of the Holy Spirit in the individual. But in that chapter we read a few minutes ago, chapter 3, There he speaks of the special presence of the Spirit in the corporate fellowship of the church. Now again, this is what he wrote in that third chapter, verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, 
and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now we notice there his use of the word temple, and we do know that he's speaking of the church corporately here because of what we read earlier in chapter 3. It is true that as a believer, you are a believer priest. That means that you can go to God at any time, in any place. You can have communion with the Lord God. But there is no place where there is this special sense of worship like there is in the corporate assembly of the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, we are the temple of God. And his audience would have understood that reference. The temple, that's, that's the unique place where God met with his people. The Old Testament temple and the New Testament church are not the same, but there are certain comparisons that we can make between the two. Now, that's what we want to do next. We want to look at some comparisons between the church and the temple. Now, the worship at the Old Testament temple contains types of the way that Christ would work through his church. Now, the first that we could look at is, is the preparation of the temple. The temple must be built. Now, as always, a, a building requires the assembling of building materials. And so God called a man to prepare the building materials for the temple. That man was David. David intended that he would build the temple himself. That would be the permanent place that would house the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the uh, symbol of God's presence with them. Now, previously, Israel had their temporary place of worship, a place where they sacrificed to the Lord God, and that was the tabernacle. Those of you who have been with us in long studies about the tabernacle, you understand that that word simply means a tent, or it means a dwelling place. And, and the tabernacle was a temporary structure. It was a tent that was just picked up and moved from place to place as Israel wandered in the wilderness. But then when Israel was established in Canaan, there wasn't a need any longer to move the tabernacle. So Israel was now in their permanent home, and so they needed a permanent place of worship. That was David's desire, that he would build this permanent place of worship. But God didn't allow him. Instead, he permitted David to raise some of the funds for the building and assembled some of the materials, but all of that would wait until Solomon, his son, came to the throne, and then Solomon would build the building. Well, similarly, God had a plan of preparation for the church. The church is not a brick-and-mortar building. The church is a spiritual house that is made up of living stones, and these living stones had to be prepared by someone. In the New Testament, the person of preparation was John the Baptist. The prophecy concerning him is found in the Old Testament in Isaiah 40, verse number 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That prophecy is recalled in Luke 3, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
And then in Mark 1 verses 2 and 3, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Listen, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. These verses refer to John's work before Christ began his public ministry. And John's preparation of the church was not physical materials, not stones that are in like in the temple, not timber that was used in the temple, not gold that was given as offerings for the building of a physical temple. And that's because Christ's church is not a physical structure. Now, some people are very confused about that. We come into this building here, and to them, this is the church. But this building where we meet is not the church. That's, that's a name that we give, a, a generic name for it. That, that's, this is not the church. The church is the people. The church is us gathered together, assembled together. We are the church. We are the ones who are covenanted together in the gospel of Christ. Well, who were then the first living stones that were prepared for the building of the church. These were the apostles. All of these men were baptized by John the Baptist. And to be a charter member of the original church, they had to have the baptism of John. Now we learn this in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, when there was an apostle that was chosen to replace Judas when he fell. Now, Peter gave this qualification in Acts. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So it's John who baptized and prepared the apostles as the first living stones of the church. And so as David prepared physical materials, real stones, real timber, real gold, and all the other things that went into it, so John the Baptist prepared the spiritual side of this, the spiritual living stones for the building of the first church. Now secondly, in this comparison, is the dedication of the temple. After the temple was finished, it was dedicated with sacrifices. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 51 through 8, chapter 8, verse 5. And in that fifth verse of 1 Kings 8, it says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, not Noah's ark, the ark of the covenant, sacrificing sheep and oxen, that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. What a sight that must have been. Thousands upon thousands of animals killed. Imagine what a bloody scene that must have been. I doubt seriously we could do that today. I don't think I'd want to do that out on the parking lot this morning. None of us can really frame in our minds what that must have been like to see all of these animals killed in sacrifice. And each one of those sacrifices referenced in some way the once-for-all sacrifice that was to come. And that sacrifice was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
It represented that one Lamb of God who was without sin, without spot and blemish. And doesn't that speak to us of the dedication of the Lord's church? When Jesus finished his spiritual house, he dedicated it with the sacrifice of himself. When his earthly ministry was over, when the scriptures concerning him had all been fulfilled, then he dedicated his church with the offering of himself. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross did what none of the Old Testament sacrifices could do. Those were just examples. They were types and shadows. They were figures that could never take away sin. But when Jesus Christ sacrificed himself, he removed all sins of all believers forever. Now, when Jesus assembled his church by calling out the twelve apostles and training them and commissioning them to preach, then his earthly ministry was over. And there was only one thing left to do. That's to dedicate the church and give it power by the promise of himself. Without that sacrifice, the church is meaningless. We don't meet here today without the fact that Jesus Christ died. And as we know, Sunday, that's the day of the resurrection Christ must die. And so Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy by his once, his great once for all sacrifice. But then there's one more needful thing that must be fulfilled according to the Old Testament. And that is the consecration. The consecration of the temple. When the temple was finished and dedicated, this is when the Holy Shekinah, God's presence, came and filled the temple with glory. Here's the account from 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. What is or what was that cloud? Well, the cloud that filled the temple was the same cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. This was the Holy Spirit of God, the one who guides, leads, and directs his people. And so this cloud ascended from the Shekinah glory, and it was revealed that that glory is a great light that dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat on the ark, and it was a symbol of God's presence with his people. And marvelously, that brings us into the New Testament to Acts chapter 2 because the glory of God filling the temple spoke of the Holy Spirit who came on the day of Pentecost. After Jesus sacrificed himself and ascended into heaven, then the Holy Spirit empowered the church with spiritual gifts and made it his habitation forever. And so there in Acts chapter 2, we read of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that was in fulfillment of that promise that Jesus made to his disciples that he would not leave them, but he would give them a comforter. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit of God. And that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would be with his people until he comes again. And the giving of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is spoken of as a seal, as a guarantee, as a down payment, you might say, as an earnest of the purchased possession, a guarantee that Jesus is coming back for us. 
He gave us the Holy Spirit to seal that promise to us. So this Old Testament consecration of the temple by the filling of God's presence, that is just a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit's presence with us today. Our comfort, our consolation is to have the Spirit abiding with us, witnessing to our spirits that we are the sanctified people of God. And so on the day of Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit. He descended upon the church as the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And that's when the church was empowered to preach the gospel to all parts of the world. And that same Holy Spirit of God is here with us today. It's the same Spirit who meets with us in this church when we assemble. When God's people are collectively together, when they assemble as His church, that's when the Holy Spirit meets in a special way. All of these things are evidence that Jesus personally built the church. He followed the Old Testament pattern. The material for the church was prepared by salvation and baptism. And then the church was dedicated by sacrifice. Then it was consecrated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the church that Jesus built. So first, the true church must begin with Christ. Now secondly, the true church must be a New Testament church. Now with many denominations and with all the disagreements there are between churches, how are we to determine which of all of these that we should be a part of? And that is an important pressing question Because if the church is God's program for the world in this age, then we're not able to be a part of that program unless we're in the right church. I know that there are many of you that came from different denominations. And uh, I assume that you left other churches and you came here because there was a problem. Now, Now let me say this, that not all problems are problems that disqualify a church from being a true church. But I think that we would all have to admit that it, that, it, that it is evident that many are not true churches. Not every church can be identified as a true New Testament church. Boyce Taylor, who was a Baptist preacher at the turn of the last century, wrote this. He said, to be a New Testament church, a church must have been organized at the right time, at the right place, by the right person, out of the right material, must have the right officers, the right polity, the right discipline, the right doctrine, right practices, the right gospel, and the right mission. Then he says, the first missionary Baptist church complies with every one of these requirements. And let me qualify Dr. Taylor's statement was something I know that he would agree with. I know that he would agree with this, that because you have a name does not qualify you as a new church, New Testament church. The name itself does not qualify you to be a church. And so when he said that the first missionary Baptist church complies with all the requirements, he meant that the first church had the same doctrine that we believe in this church. There must be Churches that link historically with the first church that was begun by Christ by maintaining the doctrines of the New Testament. And that's not to say that every church that has the name Baptist on it is a true church. 
Uh, that's not true, nor is it to say that all churches today that call themselves Baptists is a true church. And it's not to say, maybe that's the same thing said twice in a different way, but it's also not to say that because a church doesn't have the name Baptist throughout history, that that doesn't make it a true church, because it's, again, not in the name. In fact, Baptists were named by enemies, not by the Lord. So if we can identify with the requirements, then we can claim to be a true church. Let me show you why we're Baptist. And we're not Methodist. We're not Presbyterians. We're not Pentecostals. Now, you, you shouldn't wonder why I should make a statement like that. Because if I thought Methodists were right, what would I be? I'd be a Methodist. If I thought Presbyterians were right about what they believe, then I would be a Presbyterian. That's not to say that everything Presbyterians believe is wrong. Certainly not. But I'm a Baptist because I agree with Baptist doctrine. And I think that I can find what I believe in the New Testament. So we look at the scriptures. And what we want to find out is do we meet the requirements of the New Testament? Now what Dr. Boyce said about this. That quote that I made a moment ago. That's not the Bible. That's not the Bible, but it's built on truths of the church that come out of the Bible. And I don't think that anything in that list that I read that anybody would say, well, no, that's not taught in the New Testament, that you can't find that because it certainly can be. Now, first, to be a new church, we're going to break down his statement and see what he says about this. He said, first, it must begin at the right time. True church must begin at the right time. The church had to come into existence when Christ was here in his personal ministry. And so this means it must date back 2,000 years to the time of Christ. So if there's something new that arose since that time, and this something new does not have the doctrines of the New Testament that the apostles and Jesus Christ himself taught, how would we characterize that? as a true New Testament church. The Roman Catholics claim that they have this antiquity, but they have no proof of any existence before 300 A.D. Churches that come out of Roman Catholicism would have great difficulty proving they are true churches. The only way to be a true church is to link to that same church with the same doctrine as Christ and the apostles. Again, I don't see how we could argue that point. It must be Christ's doctrine. It must be what the apostles taught. They are the foundation. Secondly, it must begin at the right place. This church that Jesus called my church was built in Palestine. Founder of the church was there. He was born there. His personal ministry was there. The church couldn't have been organized at any other place but there. The apostles that made up the first church were there. They were baptized by John the Baptist who was there in the River Jordan that is there. And no one could company, we just read, with the twelve unless they had that baptism of John. And if they had his baptism, they had to be in Palestine. Now outside of that link to the right place are all sorts of churches that spring up on street corners with various doctrines. Now, because somebody rents a building and puts a platform in that building and puts a podium like this in that building and may or may not 
read from the Bible does not make them a true church. Thirdly, it must begin with the right person. Now we've already proved that point. Jesus Christ is the head, the founder, the builder, the master, the Lord. He is the sole owner and proprietor of his church. He called it my church. Jesus is the one who receives all the honor and glory for building his church. And he he doesn't intend to share that glory with anyone else. And so he's not going to share that with the Pope. He won't share that with Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Wesley or Alexander Campbell or anybody else. And so if there's somebody else who founded your church, then it wasn't founded by the right person. Fourthly, it must begin with the right material. Who were those lively stones that were built into the first spiritual house? Who were the members of that first church? Well, they were the ones we just said were baptized by John the Baptist. The apostles had John's baptism. They were commanded in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go and make converts and baptize them. So that baptism that John had was initiated under the direct authority of God. And that is still the same baptism that we practice today. We still practice John's baptism. Now, there's something else significant about this statement. The right material for the church must be those that are saved. In the scriptures, we read that those that were saved and baptized were added to the church. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples. That means get them saved, then baptize them. No one in the scriptures was baptized Before they were saved. And so if there's anybody who baptizes people to save them. And to get them into the church. Then they have a church that's built out of the wrong material. Roman Catholics baptize infants. To wash away as they say original sin. Protestants baptize babies to make them a part of the visible covenant community of the church. That is not New Testament. You cannot baptize anyone who has not personally trusted Jesus Christ. If you do, then you have a church that's built out of the wrong material. Fifthly, it must have the right officers. The only description of officers in the New Testament for the church are pastors and deacons. Now sometimes a pastor is referred to as a bishop. That's the same office. Pastor refers to relationship. Bishop refers to official duties. And then sometimes a pastor is called an elder. And that's the same office as well. It just refers to the respect that's afforded to the office. So there is no pope in the church. We don't find that in the New Testament. We don't find rulers over groups of churches in the New Testament. There are no cardinals in the New Testament. There are no blue jays in the New Testament either. There's no right reverends and left reverends. There are no potentates. There's only pastors and deacons. And who I would ask you, who are the pastors, uh, who are the officers of this church? Well, pastors and deacons. Sixthly, it must have the right polity. What is polity? Polity means the form of government. The form of government in the church must be right to be a New Testament church. 
Now, according to the New Testament example, the government of the church is, ta-da, democratic. The government of the church is democratic. It's congregational. It operates under the headship of Christ. The church receives its authority from the Bible, which is the word of God. We don't bow to anyone outside of the church, but Jesus Christ himself. Roman Catholics believe that the church gives authority to the Bible. And so therefore the Bible is not their only rule of faith and practice. So what they can do is to change anything upon their own authority. But our authority comes only from the Bible because the Bible is God's infallible word. So we don't make any new laws. We don't make new laws because the law has already been established in the word. We don't have councils that overrule the authority of God's word. We can't decree that the Pope is infallible because the Bible doesn't teach that. We don't canonize saints. We don't grant release from purgatory by the payment of a price because the Bible does not teach purgatory, nor does it teach the power of the church to change the disposition of anyone after they've left this life. We don't change wine into the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't change bread into his flesh because the Bible does not teach it. We don't grant absolution of sin by the confessional nor penance because the Bible doesn't teach it. We don't establish any tradition as our rule of faith and practice. We do not supersede the word of God by any of these edicts that we might pass. We don't even attempt it. We only accept what is in God's written word as our final authority. So there's a great contrast here between the polity of churches, many churches, and that of Baptist churches. Uh, in most churches, the will of the people is, is, in the local assembly, is supplanted by that of a higher authority, a higher person, a higher, a higher group. But in a Baptist church, that is one that's like Berean, there is no other authority. The, the decisions that we make here have no appeal. We don't ask a regional bishop. We don't ask a synod. And of course, we don't ask a pope if our judgments are correct. We answer only to Jesus Christ himself. Seventh characteristic of a true church. And be sure you get this. It must have the right gospel. The right gospel is salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The right gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried in a tomb, and then in three days he arose from the dead. The right gospel says that the perfect life of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood on the cross is the only means of salvation. It excludes any works on our part. There's nothing that we do to merit the grace of God. Grace and merit are mutually exclusive terms. The right gospel says that Jesus Christ is the answer for our sinful condition. That we must come to him in repentance from sin, asking for God's forgiveness and trusting Jesus Christ alone For our salvation. And then salvation is given as God's gift. 
The right gospel of Jesus Christ does not say, be baptized and then you will be saved. And as important as the church is, the right gospel does not say, join this church and you will be saved. The right gospel does not say we have to go through a process of confirmation. It does not say that you must keep sacraments. It does not say that you must repeat the rosary. It has no conditions but repentance and faith and those are granted by God. The right gospel of Jesus Christ says that once a person is saved, he is safe and secure. He has eternal life as a present possession and he can never lose it. A person that believes that he can lose his salvation does not understand grace and does not understand the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. No church can be a true church unless it has the right gospel. And then lastly today, it must have the right mission. There's only one mission that Jesus gave to his church. He said, preach the gospel. He said, make disciples, teach them to observe the commandments. So the church wasn't founded as a relief organization, not a social organization, a relief agency. It's not a soup kitchen. The church is not a theater of entertainment. Church is a place of fellowship in the gospel with a commission to make saved people out of lost sinners and then train them to do the same. Now, there might be, and there are, many, many good works that the church does. But if the church loses the missionary zeal as the primary focus, then it's not the kind of church that Jesus built. The New Testament church must follow the order that Christ gave for evangelism. Christ gave this in Acts chapter 1. He said, go into Jerusalem. That would be to us, Ronard Park. Go into Judea, that would be California. Go into Samaria, that's the other states of America. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, that's the rest of the countries of the world. So we endeavor to carry out that commission just as Christ gave it. The first church at Jerusalem that was begun by Jesus was highly dedicated to that command. And so they witnessed Millions of people have heard the gospel from that first witness. And that's the reason that we're saved today. The witness of the first church is why you and I are here today. And the power of the gospel that was present in the first century is not lost. That power is still here today. It reached the entire world in that time and it can reach the entire world today. The apostles had power to preach. Power to change people through the gospel. And so to be a true New Testament church, we must keep this missionary zeal. Well, then we, we come back to this, and we've got this whole list now um, that we separated out from that, from that uh, quote that I gave you. Where is there a church that meets all of these requirements? What church can claim to be, rightly claim to be the church that Jesus built? Now, in the beginning of the message, I said, people ask me, what is your understanding of the church? And I say, well, I have a historical understanding of it. So I look back through history and I see what, that there is a, a church, there, is a, 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 there are groups of people that follow down through the centuries believing the same things that are taught in the New Testament. So historically, I find 
that the Baptist church meets those requirements. Now, I want to emphasize again that the name does not make us. The name does not qualify us. The doctrines qualify us to be a true church of Jesus Christ. So we are connected to the true church by the right time of organization, by the right place, by the right person, out of the right material, with the right officers, the right polity, the right discipline, the right doctrine, the right practices, the right gospel, and the right mission. I wouldn't think that any child of God would want to be a member of a church that's not true to New Testament doctrines and principles. The truth of God's word is everlasting. It is unchangeable. People may change. Times may change. God's word endures forever. There is a reason that we have Baptist on the sign. I I think I gave that to you already. That if we were something else, then there would be something else on the sign. We have a reason for that. We identify ourselves with historical Baptist doctrine. And let me tell you something, folks. We split hairs with that doctrine. Many people don't. Many people just don't care. Yeah, we'll, we'll split some hairs on this doctrine. We're not generic Christians. Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church. And those apostles were anything but generic Christians. So may God help us to be true to his word. To continue to serve him as faithful members of the church that Jesus built. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for salvation again that we have in Jesus Christ and thanking you for your church, thanking you for this blessed institution that is your body on this earth that has been commissioned to carry out your work. Lord, more than anything, we want to be true to New Testament principles, true to doctrines that we find in the Word of God. And it's incumbent upon us to search the Scriptures as Bereans do, to look into the Scriptures daily and determine, are we doing what the New Testament says? Are we following the doctrines of Jesus Christ? And if we should find error, Lord, show it to us. Help us to be corrected so we will be the church that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for, again, mercy and grace and the calling to be a part of your church. We thank you for that. Bless our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.